Welcome to another edition of the Books and Culture Podcast with Books and Culture's editor, John Wilson, and I'm Stan Guthrie. This week, John, we're going to be going to Coming Attractions number four, so we're really kind of clearing the decks and letting people know what's ahead, and in your lap right now, you have a new book by Eugene Peterson. That's right, Stan. It's coming in October from Erdman's. It has a wonderful title, Holy Luck, and that comes from Psalm 45.4, as rendered in the Book of Common Prayer, Good luck have thou with thine honor. (laughs) So right off the bat, the title suggests something important about the book because holy and luck, those two words, don't normally go together in our minds. They seem to come from completely different realms, and how can they be together? And that has to do very much with the nature of this book, which is a book of poems. A bit later, I'm going to read two or three poems from the book, but I want to start by reading a bit from the introduction, which is quite remarkable. David Psalms, writes Eugene Peterson, were my introduction to poetry. I was 13 years old and had just purchased with my own money a burgundy, leather-bound King James Bible. It was summer, and we had just moved across town to a neighborhood where I had yet to make new friends. Friendless and bored, I filled in the empty, unfriended days by reading my new Bible. It wasn't long before I discovered the Psalms. The biblical culture in which I grew up was fiercely insistent that every word in the Bible is true, just as it appears on the page, literally true, straight from the mouth of God, no questions asked. And I will say in brackets here that that is generally the culture in which I was raised as well, though not as much at home as in the larger setting. But in the Psalms, that way of reading wasn't getting me anywhere I wanted to go. I read, Thou, O Lord, art a shield, The Lord is my rock. Put thou my tears in thy bottle. God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Hmm. God is a weapon. God is a rock. God carries a specimen bottle to collect tears. God prowls the earth with bow and arrow to destroy my enemies. Literal wasn't working for me, but I was shy about asking questions, fearful that I would be reprimanded for calling the Bible, God's very words, into question. In the church world I inhabited, asking questions was suspect, and so I plodded on, quite enjoying the rhythms and images, but puzzled how to make literal sense of them. And in the process of plodding, without really noticing what was happening, I quit trying to figure these psalms out and found myself drawn into a world of words in which I was no longer a questioner but a participant, and enjoying the participation. About halfway through the summer, I realized that there was a way of using words that was not literal. I was learning more or less on the job, the magic of metaphor, although it would be years before I acquired a vocabulary to name what I was experiencing in David's poems. Mm -hmm. Language began to explode with possibilities. There was a lot more to using words than making shopping lists, giving directions, to a lost stranger looking for a street address, memorizing dates and names in preparation for passing exams, calling my dog, proving the existence of God. Far more was involved in the language of David 
that was using the dictionary definitions. Sounds and combinations of sound were part of it, rhythm and repetition and rhyme. I found myself not so much looking for facts that I could use, but participating in the making of something true or beautiful or compelling. And just a bit later in the introduction, as he talks about how this way of understanding and using language became central to his life, and he talks about how he began to write poems over the course of his life. And he talks about the first section, which is called Holy Luck, the title of the book as a whole. He starts off and says, Early in my formation as a pastor, I realized that I had a very flawed imagination for comprehending what was involved in giving witness to and providing direction for embracing and practicing the Christian life, a holy life. I was bringing together fragments of experience that had seemed to work for me, but as I pursued a pastoral vocation, I found that they didn't make much of a dent in the prevailing culture of America, a culture thoroughly secularized and commodified. I went looking for something that could integrate the pieces of my experience into something larger than my experience, something that oriented me to the conditions of kingdom of God life. At some point early on, I hit on the Beatitudes as a place to start. And He talks about how the Beatitudes were the inspiration for the first section of poems in the book. And then just a little bit later, talking about the second section, which is called the Rustling Grass, there's this wonderful passage where he says, My entire life takes place in conditions identified as kingdom of God, not just my, quote, spiritual life or my church life or my religious life, but my entire life. Most reality is invisible. There is plenty to be seen and heard and touched and tasted and smelled, a rainbow of colors and flower and sunset, a symphony and tunes and melodies. But life in the kingdom is an immersion in a much larger, more comprehensive reality. Most of what I see and hear, smell and touch, I soon discover is an opening, a window or door to something invisible, beauty, truth, goodness, but not those words as such, not abstractions, nothing quantifiable or measurable. The incarnation became flesh and dwelt among us, puts us in touch with what cannot be touched. This introduction alone, before you even get to the poems, is more than worth the modest price of the books. It's profound and blunt and poetic all at once, and it bears multiple readings. But I just want to read now a couple of poems from the book. This one is called Choir, and it has an epigraph from Luke 2.14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace with whom he is pleased. Untuned, I'm flat on my feet, sharp with my tongue, a walking, talking discord, out of sorts. My heart murmurs are entered in lab reports. The noise between my ears cannot be sung. Ill-pleased, I join a line of hard-to-please people who want to exchange their lumpy bourgeois souls for a keen Greek mind with a strong Roman nose, then find ourselves surprised at the edge of a stable. Caroling angels and a well-pleased God join a choir of cow and sheep and dog. At this barnyard border between wish and gift, I glimpse the just-formed flesh, now mine. They lift praise voices and sing twelve tones of pleasure into my muscles, into my bones.
And then the last two poems, we've talked about several times when we've been drawing attention to some books of poetry. Various as poets are, one thing that many of them do is pay attention to the way that we use words habitually without thinking much about the way that we're using them. And then they reflect on that. And so this poem is called Prayer Time, which, of course, is a very familiar phrase to those of us in the church that say, you know, it's prayer time, it's prayer time. The poem then upsets some of our common discourse about prayer. So here it is, prayer time. I've never had an answered prayer or unanswered. There's a clearing away or a darkening over, a quickened pulse or slowed step, not getting, but getting in on God, being there, Mm. without murdering the poem by dissecting it. You see that he's both taking that familiar phrase, prayer time, and then the familiar discourse about There's no such thing as an unanswered prayer. Completely turning it upside down by saying, I've never had an answered prayer, but then, or unanswered. And (laughs) what does that mean? And that harkens very much back to what he says in the beginning about how words work and how language work. They shape our souls, don't they? Yes, both for better and for worse. Mm -hmm. The last poem is similar in the sense of taking a stock phrase and playing with it. The last one I'll read, it's called The New Math. And the epigraph is from Psalm 90, 12. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Construct a calendar of grace, Genesis days and moon-marked months. Make a Christian year. Add blessings. Subtract sins. Divide sorrow. Multiply love. An arithmetic to confound the devil. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And I love this book. And I love Eugene Peterson and also his wife, Jan. And I was very touched by the dedication for Jan in our 54th year of marriage. Are these poems out of many years of writing and reflection, or are they a new collection? They're out of many years. He mentions that in the introduction and says that though a small number of them, a very small number have appeared here and there in magazines and such. Most of them have just been read by his wife or family or close friends. And so it's really drawn from a lifetime as a pastor. I also take my hat off once again to Jan Pott and the people at Erdman's for the books they publish, including Holy Luck.